So we get to go over today the fourth servant song. This is great. And it got me thinking because, you know, like usually when you look and you talk about the Bible and you say that the Bible's all about Jesus, you, you do it from, and I, and I got this symbolism because today, this week, my boss called me that works out of Ohio and said, I'm leaving the company. I wanted you to know before it went public. And I asked him, well, the first question is, you know, where are you going? And he's going to work for Google in their venture capitalist called LTA, which means lighter than air. They're building airships. Um, and so, you know, I told him, I said, okay, if you find out they're building these and using hydrogen like the Hindenburg, are you, are you coming back to us? And I looked and some of the other airships that are in service are. But it got me thinking, you know, you, when you're really high up there, you just get an overview. And that's something that we always talk about is, you know, that the Bible is all about Jesus, but we do it from that higher elevation. We don't zoom in. So I was looking at that and looking at some of the things that people have said about it. And the best one I got was from John MacArthur. And he says, you know, it gives you a clue of what the Bible is in reference to Jesus. And he says the Old Testament is the anticipation of Christ. The Gospels are the, are the incarnation of Christ. Acts is the proclamation of Christ. The epistles are the explanation of Christ. And Revelation is the glorification of Christ. So, so today we're going to see, by looking at this section, that Mark was not the first gospel written. And in biblical order, Matthew was not the first gospel we come to. We're going to land and take a, a very close look at the Bible being all about Jesus. And that is this section called the Fourth Servant Song. And namely, we're going to really look into this in Isaiah 53. So a gospel is the divinely inspired good news of Jesus. It's one of the few Greek words I can say, eugelion, which means evangelize, which means good news, which means a gospel. Now Isaiah 53 is the good news of Jesus and it was written 700 years before the cross took place. Here are some facts about it. Isaiah 53, it's the most complete and profound revelation of the work of salvation in the entire Bible. Martin Luther said, every Christian should memorize this passage. I'll have to tell him I failed so far. Um, this is the heart of gospel language. The gospel language which we are familiar with comes from this passage more than any other New Testament passage. These predictions that are in Isaiah 53 are so complex, so precise, that only God could have mentioned this and brought it to us seven centuries before they occurred. If you haven't caught on yet, I'm going to keep stressing 
either 700 years or seven centuries. And it's the most comprehensive explanation of the cross in the Bible, and it came to God again 700 years before the cross took place. You know, I thought it was very impressive when God gave us the name of Cyrus 150 years before he was born and before he released Judah back to Jerusalem. But this occurred, again, 700 years before it happened. The substitution and the sacrificial death of the Savior is fully explained in Isaiah 53. There is no chapter equal to this section of the, in the explanation of the atonement in the New Testament. So New Testament writers, as they wrote the gospel, um, referred to Isaiah 53, and collectively almost every line of Isaiah 53 is picked up in the New Testament. The scope of this chapter is extensive. It covers from eternity past to eternity future, from the Trinity in heaven to the redeemed with the Trinity in heaven in the future. It sweeps from the internal to the incarnation to the humiliation to the rejection to the unjust trial to the conviction to the execution to the accomplishment of redemption to the resurrection to the ascension to the exaltation and to the coronation of Jesus Christ, all in this passage. This is an unmistakable testimony to Christ. So my group knows this. What I started doing, you know, I would, I would watch these YouTube videos um, in preparation of this, of, of, of Jewish rabbis talking. And, and also I was watching uh, missionaries going up to Jewish people and, and reading Isaiah 53 to them on the streets. And when they asked him what, who they thought the servant was, you know, it reminded me of Jesus when he was at the well and talking to the Samaritan woman. Because although these people that had their life based on some sort of, of Jewish religion all said the suffering servant was Jesus. And then much like the Samaritan woman, how she tried to change the subject and talk about where you can worship, you know, Jesus didn't allow her to do that. Unfortunately, these missionaries let these people do that. Jesus did not let the woman change the subject, but it changed her life because he did that. And it was obvious in every case to these Jewish people, raised in that religion, who the suffering servant in 53 was. This passage provides a sufficient enough explanation of the gospel so that if we did not have any of the New Testament writings about it, sinners could still be saved. What, what happens in this passage is incredible news, and it is in the Old Testament. I, I say this because up until this passage, there is not a clear and specific revelation of how the Messiah would serve as our Savior. 
This is the fourth in a series of servant songs, and it is the most significant of all the previous songs talking about the coming Messiah. And this passage answers the most critical question that any human being could ask. The most critical question that any being could ask. How can a sinner be right with God? All religions, other than Christianity, they offer the wrong answer. The question or the riddle that is solved in Isaiah 53 comes from Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. Well, almost all of verse 7. It says, The Lord passed before him, him being Moses, and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and the transgression of sin, but will by no means clear the guilty. You know, that, that verse is not a mystery to us in this age. We understand it. Um, but back in that time, they were scratching their heads wondering, how can a God be both merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and keeping that love for thousands, and forgiving sin, but by no means clearing the guilty. How does he do both? Well, this is not answered until Isaiah 53. Now, the beginning of this passage is horrific. It may be the saddest section in the Bible. It speaks of our Messiah being so marred, his outward appearance, or the word used here, semblance, uh, it did not appear as even human. Rest in that for a moment. It wasn't like no one could... Sorry, allergies. Jesus took so much punishment, taking our wrath, that to see him left you wondering not what man this was, but what this was in front of you, this bulk of anything left. He was despised, rejected. Sorry, this didn't happen in warm-up. Stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He was pierced, he was crushed for our iniquities, and all of our sin was laid on him. You know, several weeks ago, we talked about that cup of wrath Jesus took for us and how we can never know the full extent of what he bore on our behalf. But even reading these examples, it may not provide enough. But it was horrid, and we were the ones that deserved it, and not him. And here is a twist of this I've never really noticed until I started really going through this in depth. I always thought this was a prophecy, about the future and the coming Messiah and looking forward to him seven centuries in the future. And why we can use this passage is essentially that. What this passage actually points to is something that's coming down, even not yet happening 
And the reason I can know that, the reason we can know that, is when you look at the verbs, they're all in the past tense. So how can this be a future prophecy if the verbs are in the past tense? So the verbs like verse 3, despised, forsaken. Verse 4, born our griefs, carried our sorrows. 5, he was pierced, crushed for our iniquities. Verse 7, oppressed and afflicted. You see, all these are past tense, something that already happened. Somebody is looking back at the events of the cross. This is not someone looking forward to the cross. So 700 years before the events of the cross, we have a prophecy here of someone looking back to Isaiah 53. So they are looking back to Isaiah's future. I wanted to get that movie in there so bad, but I couldn't figure out how to do it. Back to the Future, I, I just couldn't figure it out. So even, even with my experience in dumb dad jokes, I could not do it. So, and to tell you the truth, I had always thought myself that this passage was solely talking about the coming Messiah. But in fact, it appears to be someone, or as we'll get to some people, in our future, hasn't happened yet, looking back at the Messiah. And how do I know it's, it's not a person, it's a people? Because all the pronouns here are plural. So it is a people looking back to the cross and they will say the words in this passage. So let's look at them, starting at 13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations Kings shall shut their mouths because of him, for that which has not been told to them, they see, and that which they have not heard, they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. We esteemed him smitten or stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb led to slaughter, like a sheep before his shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. 
and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of living, stricken for the transgressions of my people. They made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence. There was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring and his days he shall prolong his days, that the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide with him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death, he was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, we just want to lift you up this morning and see the mighty work that you've done for us. The mighty work that you've done and just the magnitude of this section. We truly believe that this is one of the, if not the most important sections of all the Bible, because it really brings a clear focus of you and the work that you were brought to do long before man was even born and even arrived. Holy Spirit, just be with us. Help us to have eyes to see and ears to hear and just watch over us and help us to get a clear focus of everything you have for us this morning. In your precious name we pray. The people that are going to say this are found in Zechariah 12. God speaks through Zechariah and tells us that in the future, Israel, Israel will be saved. It's Zechariah 10 through 13 into 13 verse 1 and it says and i will pour out on the house of david and the inhabitants of jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that when they look back on me on him who they have pierced they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn on that day, the mourning in Jerusalem will be as great as the mourning for Hadad Ramon in the plain of Megiddo. And the land shall mourn each family by itself, the family of the house of David by itself, and the wives by themselves, and the family of the house of Nathan by itself, and their wives by themselves and all the families that are left, each by itself, and their wives by themselves. And on that day there shall be a fountain open for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse themselves from sin and uncleanliness. So salvation at some point still in the future is coming to Israel. God says they will look on me, if you caught that, they will look on me 
whom they have pierced. Ah, they will look on me, on him who they have pierced. He's telling them basically the Trinity right then and there. And they will mourn for Jesus as an only son. They will see this Jesus that they discounted back then, who he was, who he said he was. And on that day, they're going to recite Isaiah 53. Can you imagine this scene? This will be so awesome. They receive mercy, and they look back and see what a miracle, a miracle they have received. And you will understand their pain. Ezekiel 18, 31 and 32. Ezekiel 18, 31, 32 says, Cast away from you all the transgressions that you have committed, and make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. Why would you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord. So turn and live. Awesome part there is, why will you willingly die, repent and live? But this people told to us from God through Isaiah, through Zechariah, I'm sorry, they'll look back and they will see that their predecessors killed the Messiah and they will feel that grief and they will say what we see in verse 1. Verse 1 brings us two questions. Number one, who has believed what he has heard from us? They're saying they did not believe. They did not believe God, the prophets. They did not believe the apostles, the early church leaders, and all the way through history, even these missionaries on the streets. They did not believe. Without doing what God promised in Zechariah 12, how could they? It took God to move this on their heart. At this point, the people of Israel came into a knowledge of who the Messiah really is and what he endured at their hands. And this suffering was because they esteemed him not. All right, second question. And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? We know this phrase, right? We've gone through Isaiah. 52 chapters worth already. The arm of the Lord means power. And Jesus came and he demonstrated that incredible power. He healed the sick, cured the blind and the broken, brought the dead back to life, and he saved the lost and he gave them eternal life. Isaiah had said in 51.9 that the arm of the Lord was not a something, or someone apart from God, but was God. God's people were asking God, hey, in your full power, in your full power, awake and show us that power. Then in 52.6, Isaiah 52.6, God said his people will know his name and they will know that it is I who speak. And I love this part. He said, here I am. Here I am. Reminds me of Jesus saying that in the New Testament. Before Abraham was, I am. 52.8 foresaw the God, 
visibly coming to Zion. And in 52.10, we saw that bare arm in full saving power. And now at last, the arm has come. This is not a prophet that will speak with God's power. This is not a something or someone, but this is actually God himself, the one they pierced, has come to save. Salvation begins with belief, and for generations they did not believe. And why? Verse 2, For he grew up before them like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. What the Jews were looking for at this time in that day when you said Messiah, the picture that was coming in their mind was another king, right? If you think back to the first king they ever had, it was Saul. This tall, rugged, you know, well-built, handsome man. They were looking for this same type that would come and lead them against the Romans and defeat the Romans and free their land. But verse 2 says, he grew up before them like a young plant, and for emphasis, like a root out of dry ground. That picture, they would have known in this agricultural community, the plant is actually means like a sucker branch. It's the type you see on a tree that you immediately cut off, because the only thing it's doing is robbing nutrients. And then the root out of dry ground is something you remove because it's a hazard. So the actual Messiah came and he didn't meet these Jewish people's expectations. There was nothing special about him or distinctive. But that only defined the people that were looking at him through their eyes, their human eyes. Those who had eyes actually to see what Isaiah pointed out, and he pointed out earlier in several passages talking about the Messiah, and he used this incredible imagery. In Isaiah 4.2 it says, In that day, the branch of the Lord, Jesus Messiah, shall be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the land shall be the pride and the honor of the survivors of Israel. So we don't see a sucker branch. We see this branch of the Lord that's vibrant, beautiful, glorious, and is filling up the land with fruit. And then it talks that he shall be the pride and the honors of the survivors of Israel. Survivors. Makes you kind of think of Zechariah 12 when we say survivors of Israel, right? Isaiah 6.3 describes this holy seed as a stump. And we see this royal imagery in 10.33 through 11.1 as Jesus is the righteous branch coming from the stump of Jesse and will bear fruit. The truth of Jesus was he was so near for everyone to see if they had been seeking God. Not just prophets, but also 
the people that did seek God, not just prophets, but also people who had dedicated their life to God, like we read in the New Testament with Simeon and Anna. These two understood who God was, what he was doing, because of their dedication to him. And they recognized Jesus even as he was a small child. But with earthly eyes, human eyes, just to see Jesus walk by, you would have saw nothing special. Nothing stood out. He was not well built. He was not impressive in stature. He was not handsome. And then as he did walk by with a group of men that were either low in stature or tax collectors, this group was easily forgettable, which was very much unlike you saw when you saw a parade of Pharisees or Sadducees walk by with their big flowing gowns, their wide brim hats, loudly seeking praise from everyone as they walked by. Verse 3 says, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, as, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. No one was lining up to follow him. Instead, they shunned him. The fact, in fact, the, the repetition of the word despised here gives us a sense of how dismissive and mocking the people were to Jesus. The human eye just saw a man among other men they saw nothing special, nothing to give him dignity, and in fact, he was the object of scorn. He was despised by men of rank. These are the Old Testament leaders. In fact, Jesus, or you could say Yeshua, means Savior. And centuries later, Old Testament religious leaders changed referring to Jesus as Yeshua to just the name Yeshu, which is an acronym, and I have no desire to try and say it and butcher it this morning. So I'm just going to tell you this means, may his name and memory be blotted out. And as we go through the New Testament, we see this over and over, right? Just in my reading, it's one of my favorite sections this morning, John 9 is when Jesus healed the blind beggar. And so you see these religious leaders all in their places of honor, talking to this lowly man who's been blind from birth and a beggar. And they can't believe he can see. They ask his parents. His parents say, no, we're not getting involved. We know you guys are evil. He's of age. You ask him. So they brought him again to ask him, He's like, you've already asked me this. Why do you want to know who healed me? Do you want to be his disciples too? And that utterly blew their minds. It's like, how dare you, this blind beggar, born in utter sin, try to tell us anything about God? And they cast him out. Those words will come back, well, it did come back to haunt them. I guarantee, I guarantee and we read over and over in the New Testament how the religious leaders said, 
Jesus received his power from whom? The devil. We saw how the Jews treated him, and even the Romans mocked him in his, in his funeral, in his execution. He was so despised that Isaiah 53 tells us here that the Jews treated him as if he was non-existent. So remember, this passage is the future Jewish people confessing the long history of hate and receiving what Ezekiel 36.25 says. They're going to receive a new heart and a spirit. And how do we know? Because Jeremiah 31 tells us that. There will be a new covenant and they will be forgiven and shown grace. So I'm talking about looking at this passage in greater detail. We just see this whole thing God has laid out for his people to be redeemed. Verse 4, Surely he has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Verse 4 is going to be very convicting for the people of this confession because of the he and the we in this verse. We see that the word for he is obviously, it's singular, and it means Jesus, and it only means Jesus. Everyone stood off to the side and figured Jesus was getting exactly what he deserved. How opposite, right? Totally opposite. Instead, we deserved what he was getting. The Jews singing this lament deserved it, but Jesus was willingly crushed, stricken, and so abused he was not even recognizable. As a human being, all this he did for us. We is plural, and I would love to say that the guilty were just the Jews singing this song, but it is all of us. And I know under the internal pressure of this horrific act, if I was there and I was one of his followers, I probably would have been hiding also. And if I was among the crowd, I would have been jeering Jesus along with them. But he knowingly took this punishment as the substitute in our place. He knowingly took this. We spoke three weeks ago about what he did for us, and we need to praise him so much that we will never know, never know the affliction that he took that was due for all of us in that cup of wrath. Verse 5. He was pierced for our transgression. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. We see in this verse that Jesus' work was deeper than receive, receiving the outward beating and humiliation. He dealt with our internal sinful state. He was pierced and crushed for our sins. Through this, 
he removed our affliction from God, uh, removed our alienation from God, and providing a healing we did not even know we needed. Pierced is an interesting word that's used here. It's used previously in 51.9, the same word. And this is when the people were crying out to God to awaken and remembering his saving action against the Egyptians. They used the same word to remind God that he had pierced the dragon. And what it implies is a fatal wound. Transgressions is a word that means willful and rebellious sinning. It means deliberate sinning in front of our holy God. Punishment would be for those, for these transgressions. But we know God's plan was to use Jesus to bear this punishment for his people. Verse 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And he, the Lord, has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb led to the slaughter. So all of us are like straying sheep. And it's the perfect picture of the inadequacy of us trying to save ourselves. Also, it was a perfect picture in that time period because sheep in that area were plentiful in the land. And if you didn't raise sheep, you no doubt bought sheep to use in the sacrificial system. The Bible also stresses the peril that would occur to sheep without a shepherd. The key part we need to see here, though, is that is the part that God laid our iniquity on him. We were the ones that deserved it, not Jesus. I don't know if we ever slowed down enough to consider what this picture actually means. Has laid on him, in our, Eng- in our English words, seems harmless, right? Like lay a child on the parent to sleep. But that word does not fully accurately describe what occurred. What we need to see in this term, it means to arrive at or to make to meet. By this divine act of God, Jesus was the meeting point for all of our sins. All the sins of the past, the sins of the current, and the sins of the future all met him while nailed to the cross. So we get the idea of this heavy heavy burden falling on his shoulders or many arrows aimed at him and they are all arriving and penetrating time and time over and over. It's like every one of the sins of mankind would be a separate wound in the heart of Jesus. It brings a new meaning. It brings a new meaning to when we read Jesus saying, 
when he says, it is finished. That terrific horror had ended. So now we see in a new light what we read, Jesus was smitten by God, laid on him, we should think, utterly destroyed. Utterly destroyed. Because God had transferred the guilt of all the guilty to the head of the servant, Jesus. Verse 7, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter, like a sheep that is before his shears is silent. He opened not his mouth. In verse 4, verse 4, he was described as afflicted. And this is the same bird that appears in 7, but here it's showing us that he was humble and he submitted to being struck down. The emphasis on verse 7 is to show us Jesus went clear-headed, self-restrained, and voluntarily went and accepted, accepted what happened to him. The human eye in verse 4 saw him at the mercy of hostility and evil forces. The spiritual eye that is focused on God, like in verse 6, saw the hand of God fulfilling Jesus' death as a sin-bearing exercise. We see here that we are in a very sacred part of this passage as it opens up to us here. Jesus is fully aware of what is taking place. He was not caught up in this event, not knowing what was going to happen. But he decided he was going to be our substitute. He accepted it and fully submitted God. He was deliberate in his obedience. Sheep go to slaughter unaware of what's going to happen. They're so used to going in this normal routine to get sheared. It's something that they've always had. They never see death coming. Jesus knew full well what he was going, where he was being led. And he went with the calmness, reflecting a powerful and submitted mind. And I remind you, this this passage is coming seven centuries before the cross. And we still don't know how many centuries before grace falls on the people of Israel. We are in the Old Testament, and God has spoken this through Isaiah. We know Isaiah experienced his own sin forgiveness, and he was atoned for, we saw that in Isaiah 6-7 when Al brought it to us months ago. That's when he received his call. So somewhere between that time and the current passage, God showed him that the blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sin from mankind. This revelation to Isaiah and what is familiar had to be mind-blowing. When you read the Psalms, God's people were thrilled. They were thrilled with the benefits of forgiveness and peace with God 
and to have that spiritual security. There's nothing in the Psalms that gives us this idea that they knew they only enjoyed these benefits on the basis of a perfect sacrifice yet to come. They believe God and they attach promises to sacrifices. So what did they do? They offered them. They obeyed. Again, Isaiah had to have his mind blown when he realized by God's revelation to him that there is a that a greater and better sacrifice was needed. God had expressed the truth of Jesus' death in the ter- terminology of sin in the verses 4 to 6, and now in verses 7-9, God uses Isaiah to drive home the realization that it was just not the fact the servant did not deserve to die for our sins, It is that the servant did not deserve to die for our sins, but willingly did so. God showed Isaiah, and now us, the part where the animal sacrifice failed is where sin is most serious. Where the animal sacrifice failed is where sin is most serious. Willful sin cannot be overlooked by God. It is at the very heart of our sinfulness. Most of the time, we do it. We want to, and because we want to sin willfully, and we do not seek that change in our nature. We are basically saying when we do this that we don't want a man or a God to rule over us. And as you see in some modern mega churches, they will tell you, you're enough. It's because you believe you are enough. So in the Old Testament, an animal sacrifice was no more than a picture of what the substitution of sin looks like. And the reason is because only a person can be a substitute for a person. And only a consenting will can stand in for a rebellious will. Jesus alone fulfills the stated requirements for a substitute. He identifies with sinners in their condemnation in verses 4 to 5. Verse 9 tells us, tells us that he was without the stain of man's sin. There was no deceit in his mouth. And the greatest thing that Jesus did was what no other person could or would do, and that is to submit, willfully submit, to be our substitute. Isaiah is seeing this revelation in atonement, maybe as the first person on earth to hear it straight from God, is not comparing the servant's death to like a Passover lamb, but he is telling us that Jesus did not go into death with blind obedience. He went in fully knowing what he was walking towards and what awaited him. He went with full composure and a self-imposed 
silence. Verse 8. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for this genera- for his, his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of living, stricken for the transgression of my people, by oppression and judgment can be said, in our understanding, as without due process of law. He was taken away to die. Generation can mean a group of people held together by some common factor. Maybe, maybe it's just related to the same people who will look back on this passage from the future. The last two lines we understand is meaning the servant Jesus was done, complete, all the way to death cut off, then something only known through revelation to Isaiah, that Jesus dies for people's sin. Jesus was removed from the world of the living. We can see that God is stating that because of the rebellion of my people, the blow of death came to him. Verse 9, And they made his grave with the wicked, and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. The grave of the wicked here is a pretty, pretty tough place to imagine you're going to be buried. It was the city dump where trash was burned. Outlaws, convicted criminals that were put to death were thrown into this dump. So this was what Jesus was assigned to be cast into upon his death. But we know that Joseph of Arimathea was used by God to secure Jesus' body and place him in a new grave. Psalm 16.10 Psalm 16.10 says, God would not allow Jesus to see corruption, or you could say decay. Jesus was condemned to be put to death despite no violence or deceit, and there is no mistake or coincidence in God's words here when he says that, because violence is an outward act, and deceit in his mouth signifies no inner sin. So we had Jesus had no guilt, either inside or out, And we saw that what played out was trumped up against him and his trial was a sham. Verse 10 says, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days, and the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hands. The first and fourth line in this verse are intentional bookends. God performs his will upon Jesus, and Jesus undertakes the executorship of God's will. This verse shows us that it was God's will to have Jesus suffer and die for our sins. It was God's delight to have this happen. In the last section we saw it was the Lord's will or delight 
to have Cyrus free his people to restore Jerusalem. And now, and now this act is his will despite the great cost to his own son. It is hard for our minds, it's hard for our minds to understand that God was pleased to crush Jesus. The function of this guilt offering was a reparation or a compensation. It settled the offenses, the debt of all the offenses that man made against God. So Jesus satisfied both the needs of a sinful people before God and the needs or requirements of God in relation to his broken law and the offended holiness. Interesting in this verse is the word soul. In Leviticus 5.17, the person making the offering is described as the soul. Here Jesus is both the person making the offering and the offering. What we need to see here is in the phrase, when his soul makes an offering, Jesus was wholly on board wholly on board in his willingness to complete his Father's will and pleasure in making this sacrifice. It boggles the human mind. We saw in Isaiah 50, verse 7, that Jesus set his face like flint in his determination to complete this assignment. It gives us another similar picture that we see in Isaiah 9, 51. It says Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem, knowing full well what would take place. So based on this passage in my list, I don't know how I'm going to do it, but I have a list of questions I want to ask when I get to heaven. So based on this, I have to ask Isaiah what he thought when God gave him verse 10, and it said, he shall see his offspring and prolong his days. God was telling him that, you know, the servant, as we know as Jesus, would rise from this brutal death. Before, the term prolong his days had always meant a normal life was prolonged, like we see in the book of Job. Uh, But here... The use of a crushed sacrifice, crushed beyond even recognizable as a human, seeing his offspring and having prolonged days was never heard of before. It was certainly never heard of in the days of Isaiah. So praise God that once the guilt offering was paid, the offspring family can start to be gathered. I think Isaiah had to be stunned to think the servant lived on, and it's easy to see how he could wonder this, because they had the days of sacrifice. And if you've read the passage on what it meant to see this sacrifice, you observed a very brutal scene. Exodus 29 is a section on Moses following God's demands for consecrating the priest. 
Now this took just seven days of sacrifice, and it is horrendous. It is a horrendous picture of killing and continued killing by the many sacrifices with blood and parts going everywhere. By understanding these requirements of sacrifice, there can be no way, no way that Isaiah thought this servant, after going through a similar thing, would rise again. The sacrifice's blood made the priest holy, and the remains had to be taken out and burned outside the city. We see this reference in Hebrews concerning Jesus. Hebrews 13.11. And going through this study, this is the only New Testament passage I could find talking about the sacrifices in that time. Hebrews 13.11 said, For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Death did not remove Jesus from power, so he remained in full sovereign dignity and power. He paid the price and now has the victor spoil in his war with Satan and death. Satan lost. Now in verses 11 and 12, it's changed up. We no longer see Isaiah speaking, but we see God talking directly now. 11 says, Out of anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. So out of the anguish of his soul, so after the crushing sacrifice was over, that temporary act that had taken place, it says he will see and he will be satisfied. Jesus will be satisfied with what he sees. He will be pleased with the outcome of his death. He saw God's delight, and now, full authority belongs to Jesus. See means experience, and I can't, and I do not want to say that lightly. What he experienced was horrid, and on the other side, he was satisfied in pleasing his Father and obeying God's will. Jesus now has two characteristics mentioned in verse 11, knowledge and righteousness. He did not just gain these two, but Jesus had them the entire time. If he did not have knowledge, he would have fled the garden with the other disciples when the soldiers came and proved they were serious. If he did not have the righteousness already, he not, could not have served as the sacrifice for us. We know that from the Old Testament that the sacrifice had to be perfect and there was no one, nothing more perfect than Jesus. The benefits to us now is that when we believe 
that Jesus is our Savior, we enter into those same benefits that he has won for us. God calls Jesus my righteous one, my servant. We see how pleased God is. And because of this, we see in the next sentence, this is how he sees us. And this is because of Jesus, we are now accounted righteous. And God is saying, my righteousness will bear their sins. In Leviticus 16, we read about the Day of Atonement, that Moses and Aaron need to be right with God after Aaron's two sons were killed by God for taking their service too lightly and not following the orders. And they performed evil acts instead of serving God. The sacrifice Aaron had to make took a bull, a ram, and a couple goats. So the greater the sin, the greater the animal, and the greater the sin, the greater number of animals. This means the negative part of sin was cleared by God and the positive part, the sacrifice, and this allowed acceptance by God, but only until the next time a sacrifice was needed because man's sins offended him. But the perfect sacrifice and the perfect substitute brought about a perfect righteousness before God. And Isaiah 53:11 is one of the fullest statements of atonement. In fact, it is the fullest statement of atonement ever made. Jesus knew what needed to occur to save his people. He understood that. He is that righteous one. He is the only one acceptable to God to take on this role. That is, because of his righteousness, he is free of sin. And the great negative of sin was defeated by his ultimate righteousness. Verse 12. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many, and makes intercession for the transgressors. Intercession for the transgressors. We need a clear understanding of what the beginning of this verse means. Jesus did not go through all of this just to be told, hey, you need to share what you did with others. This means Jesus had received to himself as everything his own and all the ones, the many, that he died to save. It means here is he is the king of kings. And we can, knowing that, we can look back and understand what 52 verses 14 and 15 mean. The many and the kings were part of that question, the riddle. Now we know the many is everyone that has been redeemed through Jesus. And the kings, 
they fall silent because they are now in the presence of a greater king and they understand they are under his disposal. God has given it all to Jesus, everyone that he has redeemed. And how do we know? John 10, 27 through 30. John 10, 27 through 30. Listen now, and you will see that Jesus knew the plan all along. He says, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, <coughs> is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. So God says, Jesus poured out his soul to death. Jesus was both the agent and the substance of the outpouring. Again, we see no one took his life away from him. He laid it down on his own accord. He personally came down and identified with those he came to save. We see that phrase, and he was numbered with the transgressors. He came and lost his life. His good name, to be considered a horrid person worthy of death on a cross, and his dead body having no more worth than to be thrown in the city dump. He did this to be our mediator. This means he acts as the agent to ensure our pleas, our prayers, reach God's ear. Jesus is that go-between to both parties on each other's behalf. He is not a barrier to us reaching out to God. He's that bridge for a redeemed people. It is an awesome picture that Jesus voluntarily stands with us so that when an awesome God looks at us, he sees the perfect Savior Jesus instead of us. This is such a rich passage. It speaks of the work of the cross 700 years in advance and speaks to grace coming to Israel, which is still in the future, and we have no idea when that will take place. And as 52.13 says, we need to exalt Jesus because he acted so wisely and we need to worship him because he is high and lifted up and worthy to be exalted. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, all we can say is we are blown away at your willingness to come and, and just be our substitute for the punishment we deserved. We think of the scene of you on the cross just taking everything to be crushed, to be smitten, that was our sins. Sins that, for most cases, we still willingly commit. May that be enough to drive us to want to seek you, to seek you morning by morning, to seek you to gain strength, 
so we can grow. Grow in this life of being your believer and being saved by you on this road to sanctification. Jesus, we don't know when God will pour out his spirit on Israel. We don't know when they will look back at Isaiah 53 and feel the grief of what God's people did to Jesus. But we thank you that it will happen. We know one day we will be with those people in heaven. And we love the whole idea. Thank you again for your great work for us, that you knew it all along. You knew that you were being obedient and willful in the act that you performed to please your Father and to save us. Amen.